play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Andrew Ray, otherwise known as Babish. Andrew is known for his super popular YouTube channel, Babish Culinary Universe, where his 10 million subscribers tune in to watch him host an assortment of cooking shows, like Binging with Babish, where he recreates dishes from TV shows and movies, and Basics with Babish, which is also the title of his third cookbook. Basics with Babish is out now, and it is all about making mistakes in the kitchen. So we're gonna talk about some iconic foods that were created by mistake, like the chimichanga, born in Tucson, Arizona. Is there a food that you love so much you would get it tattooed on your body? Andrew has a tattoo of one of the only foods that he hates. He'll tell his story, and then I'm gonna play some tape that you sent in telling the tales of your tasty tattoos. All that coming up later in the show. But first, my conversation with Andrew Ray. Hello. Sorry, I'm like manically cleaning my kitchen now that I can see what's in the view of the video. (laughs) Oh, there's butter. No one can see I have butter in my kitchen. Hello, there's butter in your kitchen. You keep butter out because I like keeping butter out. Oh, yeah, you got to keep the butter out. Although I just got back from a two week camper van trip and I did this little trick that someone told me where I grated the cold butter onto toast when it was too cold to spread. And that was a great idea. Oh, that's brilliant. I don't have to remember that. Usually I'm just shoving a brick into my toast and trying to move it around, just tearing it up. Before Um, this, I would uh, sit on the butter to get it warm. So this feels just more (laughs) sanitary. (laughs) Like I mentioned in the intro, Andrew has a new cookbook out called Basics with Babish. It covers everything from mac and cheese to a perfect Caesar salad to shepherd's pie. And the very first sentence in the book is, quote, mistakes permeate everything I do. Andrew wants to get ahead of any mistakes his readers might make when cooking through the book. So each recipe has a section called How I've Screwed Up, followed by different ways to troubleshoot those problems. That's the tagline of the book is recipes for screwing up, trying again, hitting it out of the park. For example, his recipe for fresh pasta dough. In the How I've Screwed Up section, he writes, quote, every imaginable way. Pasta that's chewy, pasta that's soft, pasta that's gluey, and pasta that's tossed, pasta that's pale, pasta that's flabby, pasta that's frail, and pasta that's shabby. And then he tells you what to do if your pasta dough is too soft, too gummy, too sticky, too crumbly. You get the idea. I want to talk about mistakes because that seems to be a huge part of what this book is all about, basically what the whole book is all about. Um, So talk about how mistakes motivate you as a cook in your job and to write this cookbook. I am kind of a goofball, kind of clumsy and not very detail oriented. So I make a lot of mistakes in the kitchen. And in doing so, I tend to learn a lot about what to do next time. And that wasn't always the case. I used to beat up on myself pretty good for mistakes that I made in the kitchen. Any of my friends that I've hosted dinner parties for will tell you that I made it borderline unpleasant 
because I was so mad at myself for messing up the pork roast or forgetting to finish things with crunchy salt. Um, I, I didn't always see mistakes as learning experiences. Usually they were personal failures and the metric by which I judged whether or not I was a decent cook or my general worth as a person. And uh, it took a lot of time and a lot of mistakes and it took making cooking my career to start seeing mistakes for the learning experiences that they are. It really started because of the channel. First couple episodes, you'll notice that I leave in my mess ups. I thought it was funny, so I left it in there. And people liked that I was, you know, being self-effacing and vulnerable by showing that I'm not this polished professional in the kitchen. So it became a point of insistence that I would not practice any dishes before filming because if I messed up, I wanted to be able to capture it both for comedic value, but also for the learning opportunities. If you Google foods that were created by mistake, a whole bunch of listicles will pop up. Claiming everything from champagne to potato chips to Worcester sauce were invented by accident. In 1983, the New York Times published an obituary for Frank Epperson, the inventor of the popsicle. As the story goes, it was 1905, a cold night in San Francisco. And little 11-year-old Frank Epperson, they probably called him Frankie, left a glass of soda with a mixing stick in it on the porch overnight. In the morning, it was frozen and the popsicle was born. Only it wasn't called the popsicle back then. In 1924, Frank got a patent for his ice lollipop that he named an Epsicle. And in 1929, he sold it to the popsicle brand. Most of the accidental food stories are like that. Something accidentally fermented, overcooked, melted, froze, sat out in the rain, fell into a pile of spicy chilies, and became an iconic food or drink that we all know and love today. But not all of these stories are true. Most are probably folklore. The story's growing farther and farther away from the truth as time moves on, like a centuries-long game of telephone. But today, we're going to dig into one story, the fateful mistake that became the chimichanga. If you can roll a burrito, you can make a chimichanga. That's Raymond Flores, president of Flores Concepts and C. Charo Restaurants in Tucson, Arizona. Before there was a whole restaurant group, there was one Mexican restaurant, El Charo, founded 101 years ago by Raymond's mother's great aunt, Monica Flynn. El Charo is the oldest Mexican restaurant in Tucson, and it claims to be the oldest Mexican food restaurant in the country, continually operated by the same family. Raymond says Monica accidentally invented the chimichanga in the 1950s. It's a crispy burrito or a crispy burro. You can deep fry it if you are so lucky to have one in your home. You can pan fry them. As long as the tortilla gets crisp, you've got a chimichanga. How was the chimichanga born? It was something kind of made as a mistake that turned out to be something delicious that has held on for a very long time. So as legend has it, my mom, who is now our chef and, and owner, Carlota Flores, as a young girl, was with her aunt, Monica, her tia, Monica, in the kitchen. And tia Monica was going to give them all some food. They did not want tacos because tacos had vegetables. So she rolled them little burros, or as we call them now, burritos. When she was doing that, one of them dropped in a frying pan that she was working with to make tacos. And as it started to bubble and whatever, she realized that this was an accident. And instead of saying chingado, which is a cuss word of sorts in Spanish, she yelled out chimichanga. 
or probably chingado or chimichangado, something in that respect, because she called her nieces and nephews, I called my son this, little changos or little monkeys, as we call our children. So she called it a chimichanga. It took off. She started frying these little burritos or burros, and it became a way, if a tortillas was starting to head towards not being as fresh as possible for other uses, it was a great way to preserve and use the tortilla. So the chimichanga was born out of an accident, born from almost cussing out the word chingado to a bunch of kids. And it was served up uh, that day, a fateful day, and eventually made its way to the menus. Monica didn't menu it immediately because it wasn't something that was designed for that. It was a byproduct or an accident. Eventually, however, as Carlota took over later on in life and as frying food became more popular with probably all the fast food in America and everything else taking its reign, chimichangas became a staple on our menu. And we have them on all of our concepts now in a hundred different forms. The fact that Monica Flynn even opened a Mexican restaurant in the early 1920s was also sort of an accident. Monica Flynn was um, an immigrant to America through France. Her father was brought here by the Catholic Church to build the first cathedral in the 1800s. Monica was here, and as he was a builder, and most of the folks that were building for him were of Native or Native American background from this region, Mexican or Native American, she began to be his cook to keep them obviously fed during these jobs that he was building around town. In that sense, she started to learn specialties of Mexican food and Sonoran cuisine because that's what they wanted and basically learned from her father's employees. And in sometime in the early 1920s, she opened up a small shop to start selling food that she had learned to make because they said, look, you know, this food is good. You should start selling this. So she very enterprising woman uh, at a young age, opened up what would have been the first El Charo in the early 1920s. I love that America's longest operating Mexican restaurant was started by a French immigrant. That is truly the most American story. It's said that Monica often put French touches into things. For instance, she would do things like adding peas and carrots to things. She would add radishes to things. And this eventually became kind of part of the everyday life of Mexican food in this part of the, you know, this part of the country. El Charo, which was nominated for a James Beard Award in 2019, has about 10 different chimichangas on the menu right now. Everything from quesadilla mini chimis with consomme for dipping to chimis stuffed with carne seca, their famous sun-dried beef. Over the years, we've taken the chimichanga and done a lot with them. A tortilla fry is like a puff pastry, so we've fried them or filled them with you know, mango pie filling or apple pie filling and, you know, toss them in cinnamon and sugar. And that's a dessert chimichanga. We've done them with vegan cheese. And that's the origin story of the chimichanga. And it was really by accident. It wasn't by design that they were going to go and deep fry a bunch of burritos. Several years ago, I was seriously considering getting a tiny slice of pizza tattooed on my finger. I was thinking my pointer finger, and the crust would have sat flat above my knuckle, and the point of the little cheese and pepperoni triangle would have ended just below my fingernail. I was talked out of this tattoo by my friend Renee, who is my most tattooed friend, and she warned me that within a couple of years, the ink would bleed into the little lines of my finger, and it would just be this blurry, fuzzy, very melted slice of cheese pizza. I have one tattoo already, a regrettable tramp stamp that I got with a fake ID when I was 17 years old, so I cannot be trusted to make good tattoo decisions. But Andrew has a bunch of cool food tattoos. Some of you have food tattoos. 
and we're going to hear all about them when we come back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Let's talk a little bit about your food, some of your food and cooking tattoos. Um, I wrote down a couple of them. Can I just name off and then you kind of tell me the story behind it? Absolutely. Okay. So you have a cilantro tattoo. Indeed I do. Uh, I have uh, cilantro growing out of my left armpit. Uh, I got this tattoo (laughs) because I'm one of those people. I think it's 14% of the population. Don't quote me on that. That uh, genetically cilantro tastes like soap to us yeah it tastes like a a tire fire i got the tattoo of it because it's the only food that i can't teach myself to love i used to hate all seafood growing up in my early 20s i just kept eating sushi and salmon taught myself to love it now i love all seafood i can't do that with cilantro no matter how many times i taste it it's going to taste like something (laughs) highly toxic that shouldn't be in my mouth it's an interesting uh, it's sort of phenomenon to me. So I wanted to kind of memorialize it. Know my enemy. Know my enemy and put it in my armpit. (laughs) (laughs) What about born and bred as in B-R-E-A-D? I wish there was a cool story behind it, but really I wanted another tattoo. I thought that was a funny play on words. Uh, I'm sure that there's like 50 small town bakeries named that. I made a deal with myself that if I learned how to design uh, things in Illustrator. And if I designed the tattoo myself, then I could get it. So I, I learned Illustrator and, and I built the tattoo and, uh, it was kind of like a bargaining chip with my significant other at the time who did like tattoos one bit. And, uh, uh, so it was kind of like my like reasoning, like, look, I did something good as a result. I'm not a, I'm not a dangerous or bad person because I have tattoos. I know how to use Illustrator. (laughs) Yeah. What about the carving fork with the pasta hanging off of it? So this is uh, from the 2014 film Chef. I originally got this tattoo because I made this very pasta dish, the pasta aiolio, from the movie Chef. And so many people who had never cooked before were making it and tagging me on Instagram and being like, wow, I've never cooked before. And, and this came out really, really tasty. And it was really, really touching to me to see so many people trying cooking often for the first time uh, and seeing how 
you know, seven, eight ingredients can come together and form something greater than the sum of their parts. And it's, it's an empowering experience. It's an exciting experience as a home cook. And you have been rewarded with this amalgamation of your effort. So that was really special to me, which is why I got the tattoo. Happily, I got it before actually meeting John uh, Favreau. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to be like, look, I got a tattoo from your movie. And he happened to have that carving fork on hand and he gave it to me as a little token of the one from uh, the movie the actual fork from the movie yes the actual carving fork from the movie it's a wow. full-on carving fork and um i still have it to this day everybody asks me when i'm gonna get it bronzed and framed but i like using it and i'm sure that that he would like knowing that i'm using it i put the call out to you the listeners asking if you had any food tattoos. Turns out, you do. Hi, Rachel, a longtime listener, love your show. My husband, Brad, and I live in Tacoma, Washington. My wife and I have matching corn dog tattoos. So the backstory, when my hubs gets a corn dog from the deli, he eats the corny dog and hands over the stick so I can finish the crispy bits. We both wrote about that in our vows and neither of us knew that the other was gonna do it. On our first wedding anniversary, we got the matching tattoos. We love your podcast. Thanks, bye. The only thing cuter than matching corn dog tattoos is that Brad and Jess called in separately. They both left messages telling the same story, kind of like when they both unknowingly wrote the corn dogs into their vows. Hi, my name is Carla from Auburn, Washington, and I have an apple pie tattoo on my forearm. Um, a lot of people think that I have this pie on my arm because I like to bake, um, and that's true, but it's actually for my dad, um, who died in a car accident on the weekend of my 18th birthday back in 2002. Apple pie was the first thing I remember ever making with my dad in the kitchen. I was probably seven or eight years old, and it definitely didn't turn out as picture perfect as this tattoo looks but it is a very vivid memory. Fast forward to 2011 and I ended up going to pastry school. I knew I always wanted an apple pie tattoo in remembrance of my dad. And I didn't get it till 2014 while in Vegas and walked by a tattoo shop. It ended up a bit bigger than I first imagined, but I love it. My name is Lydia and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've got a cupcake tattooed on my right ankle. It's a chocolate cupcake with pink frosting and blue sprinkles and a little cherry right on top. I got this tattoo with my friend Lolly many, many, many years ago. She has the exact same tattoo in almost the exact same place on her legs. We decided to get them because they were super cute and we wanted something to link us together as friends forever. And now, mind you, this was before the great cupcake craze of the 2000s. So we were a little bit of a trendsetter. We got it mostly because we just wanted something cute. What's cuter than a cupcake? I don't know. It was so cute that our third best friend, Coach, decided to get one of his own. So now the three of us have matching, pink-frosted, adorable little cupcakes. Have a great day. Hi, my name's Brittany, and I'm in Chicago. I have a tattoo of the dish Loco Moco, which is native to Hawaii, but I actually had it for the first time in Alaska, and I loved it. I had never had anything like it, really obsessed with it, and made it at home. And so when I went to Hawaii the last time, I decided to get a tattoo of Loco Moco to commemorate this amazing dish. Hi, this is Merrick from Seattle. I didn't choose the pizza life. The pizza life chose me, and therefore I have a pizza tattoo on my arm. 
I was really lost in my life, didn't know what I wanted to do. I got a job making pizza at the independent pizzeria and it brought me a lot of joy. Everyone is happy when you bring them that hot, sizzling, beautiful, cheesy pie with glorious toppings. People love pizza and I loved making it for them. Hello, I'm Stephanie from Seattle and this is not about my food tattoo so much as the one I saw a little peeking out of on a first date one time. I was taken out to a cupcake restaurant by a fellow who drove up on a Harley. I say, okay, what's your most interesting tattoo? And he says, I have a steak dinner on my chest. And you know what? It is the regret of my life that I didn't ask him to take his shirt off right there. But you know what, it wasn't that kind of a date. It wasn't gonna go down that road, you know what I mean? I wasn't gonna see him without his shirt on. But literally, I have dreams. I keep thinking like, was there were there sides? Was there a fork? Was there a knife? I'm fascinated and I'll always regret that. I love you guys. All right, quick break. But when we come back, Andrew shares his last meal and he tells us about the official food of his hometown, garbage plate. If you like listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite, just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Andrew is not a trained chef. He is a self-taught home cook. And even though he didn't grow up in a super gourmet household, it was his mother's cooking that inspired him to start cooking and eventually to help others learn to cook. Your mom passed away when you were 11. Talk about how she influenced you to learn how to cook. She was just a wonderful mom who wanted to make sure that there was a home-cooked meal on the on the table every night. Just the best mom in that way. It's not that she was an incredible cook or, you know, making great grandma's recipe from the old country or anything like that. She was just a, a great parent who wanted to make sure we had pasta or chuck roast or whatever uh, fill in our bellies at the end of the day. And um, she would let me help bake cookies and all that stuff. I was very young. Uh, so she just kind of like planted the seeds. And then when she died, when, uh, yeah, in 1997, when I was 11, me and my dad and my brother were left on our own. And as a result, we all started trying to cook a little bit more. My dad tried to cook more often, even though he had never enjoyed or expressed interest in, in the art. Uh, so, he, you know, some, some big mistakes there. Uh, I remember one time he mistook, um, cloves for uh chili powder yeah cloves for chili powder so he he made chili that was the <laughs> cloviest clove that ever cloved um, pumpkin spice chili 
Yeah, it was pretty gnarly, and we learned a value, very valuable lesson, as with all mistakes. And um, I was just trying to cook for myself um, when I needed to. I, I would make packet ramen. I would make, uh, I would spread tomato sauce on white bread and put American cheese on it. Put it in the toaster oven. Call it, yes. call it uh, pizza. So it's a classic '90s thing to do. Uh, just little things like that. It wasn't like some huge passion of mine. It started small, little things like my mother expressing her love and affection for me and my brother and my father by cooking for us. And that just sort of translated and snowballed into my love for cooking today. Um, is that your mom's knife behind you that's that's up there? I had read that um, your dad had gifted you your mom's knife when you were yeah, 35. Yeah, let, let me grab it. I can read you the little story on the back. That he wrote um this was a birthday present for me in 2021 he said hey dear andy i'm giving you this treasured handcrafted knife i gave mom while we were at union college in barberville kentucky studying appalachian culture in 1971. this gift supported both a local craftsman in one of the most impoverished areas of the country and your mom's love of cooking i know she's very happy you have it now and uh he had it mounted and we had a local craftsman in Appalachia whip this up from scraps, and uh, here it stands above my my studio set. That's really cool. So, do you not use it? Do you just keep it on display? Oh no, this is not a sharp knife. <laughs> <laughs> it so, could be your better knife. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember this being in the kitchen drawer when I was growing up. So this was very special to see when uh, all mounted up and everything when he gave it to me because I didn't know the story behind it. It was just a knife. Yeah, it's interesting. We all kind of have these relationships to our kitchen tools, you know, whether you're someone who likes to cook or not. Like you said, you remember seeing that in the drawer and everyone has like a wooden spoon that they like the best, even if it's just some cheap thing or it's like there's certain things I don't like washing. Like I hate washing a strainer, but I love washing a pan. And, you know, for this knife that was always just kind of like in your consciousness as a kid, it now belongs to you and can be front and center. Yeah, it's really nice to to be able to have that sort of sense memory. This this and corn cob holders and um, yes, we always use those too. Do people still buy those that use them? Like I've never of my generation gone to someone's house and eaten with those. Like I'm sure older people still do. Do you have them? I, I don't have them, and I would be stunned if they still made them because I think people realized around 2005. I can just pick this up. <laughs> we cannot touch the they? corn. <laughs> these 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 little things are just landfill. Why, 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 why do we have these? The thing that I started doing with corn as an adult, because I wasn't allowed to as a kid, is uh, I remember going to people's houses and they were allowed to roll the hot corn directly on a stick of butter. And Ooh. we were not allowed to do that. Like now I just roll it right in there. I don't care anymore. Yeah, that's a great sort of first adulthood thing to do is be like, I'm rolling my corn and butter. So you mentioned that you're from uh, upstate New York. You're from Rochester. I read that the official dish is called garbage plate. What is that? Oh, boy. A garbage plate. <laughs> Sorry to burden you with the, the garbage plate. <laughs> no, 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 no. It is the official dish of Rochester. It is basically a styrofoam clamshell container with a layer of French fries, mac salad, two cheeseburgers, two hot dogs. I White Hots, that's a... Um, Rochester Wild Specialty. It's a pork and veal hot dog. It's basically a, a Weisswurst. And uh, those are cut in half, griddled with the cheeseburgers. And then it's all topped with 
what's called hot sauce, but it's not spicy. It's, uh, I don't know what, where it gets its name from. It's basically uh, a ground beef sauce that's with onions that's been spiced with some interesting stuff like cinnamon and, and, and clove. It's got this kind of like aromatic vibe to it. Very. It's big. almost like and, Cincinnati uh, chili. Okay. <laughs> now, I might have mixed feelings about the garbage plate, but I would not compare it to Skyline chili, which is... Well, it's ground meat sauce. It's ground meat with cinnamon and cloves and stuff in it. So that's what made me think about that. Yeah. (laughs) I just hate the look of Skyline chili so much. There's the uh, naked noodles topped with meat sauce. It looks like the picture on a bottle of ragu. The garbage plate is significantly sloppier looking and it's late night food for sure. So let's get into the big question. What would your last meal be? I thought about this. I was trying very hard to... um, come up with what my actual last meal would be. And it's really a difficult question. And I wish I had this really cool or unique answer, but my ultimate comfort food and my my favorite food item on the planet is uh, chicken parmesan and other just like Italian-American favorites. So for my last meal, I'd want to go Italian-American feast of just like the bastardized Italian dishes that had came up in in the U.S. in the fifties and sixties. Chicken parm, shrimp scampi, garlic bread, uh, just 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 all the stuff that I grew up eating. These are things that my mom used to make. And there's something about chicken parm. I don't know what it is because it's the same flavors as iterated in hundreds of other dishes. It's mozzarella, tomato sauce, and a carb, basically. So deep fried breading and chicken. This comes in a thousand different shapes, in a thousand different variations, but for some reason, chicken parm hits me right where I live. I don't know why the sum of its parts creates something that makes me happy on a deep, instinctual level. I have to ask my dad if my mom would make chicken parm specifically so I can see if there's some sort of latent Mm -hmm. childhood sense memory there. But it's especially if it's my last meal, if I'm about to shuffle off this mortal coil, uh, not only do I not have to worry about carbs, I'm sure you've heard that joke 50,000 times on this podcast, uh, but I, I get to really uh, uh, pig out on my, my, my feeling foods. So pasta, chicken parm, bread, meatballs, cheese. Yes. Yes. Are you Italian-American? Partially. I'm, 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 a, I'm a real mutt. I thought I was half Italian my entire life, and I, I spit in the vial, and they they were like, "You're twelve percent Italian," and I I, don't, I resent that, but because um, <laughs> it's the most exotic thing about me. Everything else is Polish and Welsh and whatever. Everybody told me my mom was half Italian, uh, so that would make me a quarter if that's true. Yeah, no, I, I'm partially Italian. It's the it's the part of me that I I guess I identify with most. I love the food. I love the culture. I love going there. I've only been there once, but it's fantastic. I can't wait to go to back. For his last meal, Andrew Ray wants an Italian American feast: shrimp scampi, garlic bread, and chicken parm. You do have your recipe for chicken parm in the book, which is your last meal. So when people pick this up, they can make your last meal. Uh, every recipe comes with. Uh, head note, the Q&A, and also a description of how I personally screwed it up. How I've screwed up chicken parm, burnt chicken, unmelted cheese, pre-shredded mozz, jarred tomato sauce, burnt basil over top. Josh Shear called me out for my style of chicken parmesan, which puts an emphasis on crispiness and minimal sog. 
And as I learned from Josh, apparently some people like sog in their chicken farm. They like that kind of like gummy layer that builds up underneath the sauce and the cheese. So depending on the perspective formed from the sum total of your life experience, I've either made this perfectly or I've screwed it up every time. Both possibilities have existed once. That is the thing with chicken parm. It's like you spend this time making this super crispy breading and then you just pour liquid all over it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's there's a lot of, of dishes like that. Yeah, like putting tempura and udon, which, you know, same thing. That really gets soggy, but maybe that's just part of the charm. Yeah, I guess so. And that was Andrew Ray's last meal. Pick up his new cookbook. It's called Basics with Babish. Andrew is on a book tour right now. So if you want to see him in person and hear him read a little bit from the book, find a link to his schedule in the show notes. Andrew, thank you so much for doing the show. I have to say, I love your writing. It is so good. I love reading head notes in general. It's super funny. I mean, you're a really, really, really good writer. It's really fun to read. Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot. Um, yeah, I wrote the book over the past year and a half, and I did put a lot of work into the head notes and into the sort of supplemental material between recipes. And uh, sometimes it goes really off the rails. It goes pretty crazy sometimes, but I'm glad that you like it and that it was at least uh, partially funny. Thank you so much for having me. And this was a great interview. And uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Bye. And if you want to hear an entire episode about chicken parm, scroll back through the archives to my interview with actor and filmmaker Zach Braff. His last meal is also chicken parm. It's just so good. I want to have it every day. I'm like, my mouth is watering and it's like breakfast time here. And if you don't feel like scrolling back because it is a few years old, you can search Your Last Meal podcast, Zach Braff online, and it will pop right up. Thanks to Raymond Flores, president of Flores Concepts. You can have El Charo's chimichangas shipped right to your door using Gold Belly. Find a link in the show notes. Thanks to all of our tattooed listeners who called in to tell their tasty tattoo stories. And if you want to participate in a future episode, I always put these requests out on my Instagram stories. So follow along if you want to be a part of a future show at Hello Rachel Bell. B-E-L-L-E. Your Last Meal was created and produced by me with editing and mixing assistance from Sarah Bernard. Isaac Kaplan-Wilner helped produce. Your Last Meal is a product of Cascade Public Media in Seattle. Original theme music by Prom Queen. Oh, and make sure you're signed up for my Substack, rachelbell.substack.com. That is where I announce live events first. I do giveaways. And if you're a paid subscriber, there are sometimes some perks. One lucky paid subscriber just won Sarah Cooper's new book. You can check out my interview with Sarah from two weeks ago. And paid subscribers are also getting access to a free VIP event before my upcoming live show. Free food, free drinks, a meet and greet. Super fun. Go to rachelbell.substack.com. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. You were cutting onions in the bathroom. Uh, yes, I, I I was preparing my mirepoix or no, uh, I I didn't know what mirepoix. Your mirepoix. Yeah. Yes, you're an adult and you have bills to pay and mows to lawn, uh, lawns to mow. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, I recorded using this app. It's pretty cool. At least I thought it was. Uh, until I heard my voice back, it modulated my voice into a way that makes me sound like I have a lisp. Huh?
what's going on? Who knows if you're actually even reviewing these messages yourself? Uh, in case this is just a random producer, uh, I know, Rachel, I'm just not a weirdo sending a random voicemail criticizing your uh, message capturing. Um, I'm a friend sending a message criticizing your message capturing in the audio quality. Um, anyway, hopefully you can modulate my voice to make me sound like I don't have a lisp. Otherwise, I'll just get over it.